0: Jesse, this past week, getting to hear directly from someone who lived through such a tragedy was truly something special. What's the story this week? One night of passion
1: leads to an unplanned pregnancy, a shotgun marriage, and a fatal outcome for one member of a young couple. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jessie. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about beginnings, ends, and love gone fatally wrong.
0: You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. If you have sent us a beautiful, wonderful review, I thank you, number one, but number two, we are still doing stickers for reviews. So make sure to send us a screenshot at our email or any of our socials
0: so that we can deliver a sticky thank you to you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the great little gifts and treasures that you get. Absolutely.
1: And fun Patreon bonuses like the one we just did with my husband Nathaniel. So part two of that will be coming out probably the next couple of weeks, too. So sign on up for those exciting bonus episodes. And speaking of Patreon, we are stoked to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Fifi and Kylie
0: MG, Amy S and Elizabeth L. Miriam H and Aaron M. And
1: finally, Ryan M. and Janice C. Okay, Andy, I have been on a real Diane Fanning kick lately. She wrote The Pastor's Wife. I know. Every once in a while, I find a book I really like by an author, and then I go through thrift books and basically buy their entire back catalog. And it's like that meme where the guy is checking out the girl while he's holding hands with the other girl. Like The other girl is like all of my... Just books and books, true crime books everywhere. And they're just looking at Diane Fanning right now because I'm just doing all of her stories. I uh, used A Poisoned Passion by Diane Fanning as well as a semi-recent 2020 episode. It's from season 44, episode 19. So it aired earlier this year and the episode was called Dead Man Talking. 44 seasons. 44 seasons of 2020. Do you remember watching that when you were little? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that in like Dateline definitely started my obsession with True us. Crime. Yes, it did. <laughs> it formed us as small, weird children. It's a good 2020. We'll talk about it throughout the episode when I reference um, loved ones and other things. And I definitely think you guys are going to want to check this one out after hearing today's episode. So let's get into it. 23-year-old Air Force Staff Sergeant Mike Severance believed that actions speak louder than words. He believed that the right thing to do was always the right thing to do, even when it was the hard thing to do. He picked up the phone now and called his father, Les. He had to do a hard thing. Well, dad, I'm going to be a daddy. What? Les replied. How long have you known this girl? Not long. In fact, 25-year-old Wendy Davidson had simply been a one-night stand. Mike had met the veterinarian and single mother with the pretty brown eyes in a bar in Abilene, Texas. She had been impossible to miss. She had a big, wide smile that warmed her whole face, and her eyes crinkled when she laughed. He had been charmed, and then, well, one thing led to another. Mike didn't think he'd be hearing from her again because she had moved shortly after their night of passion, but she called with some life-changing news, and now Mike had some decisions to make. He believed he thought he knew what was the right thing to do. He had called his father to share the news, but also gut check whether marrying Wendy was the right decision to make. Family is important. I don't want my child to grow up with just one parent, Mike said thoughtfully. Look, said Les. Worst case scenario is you get married, it doesn't work, you get divorced, and you have to pay child support. But if you don't get married, you have to pay child support anyway. Mike agreed. But even now, there was just something he didn't... He didn't know if he was quite ready to get married. He was only 23 years old. He hadn't known Wendy that long. But again, sometimes the right thing to do was the hard thing, especially now that he was going to be a father. He had to think about somebody other than himself. Les would later recall this conversation ruefully. His predictions for what a worst case scenario looked like had been woefully wrong. Yeah. He hadn't known at the time that a marriage to the wrong woman could cost his son, himself, his family, and an entire community in Maine. He hadn't known at the time what a marriage to the wrong woman could cost his son, himself, his family, and an entire community in Maine. But today, we will find out. Also, consider
0: this a love murder PSA. Guys, use a condom. His dad seems to be handling it, like, very well, considering, like, my dad, even after Dan and I were married and knew each other for 16 years, was still shocked when I sent him the ultrasound picture.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if you had ever, like, made it very clear to your father that you were intending on having children, did you? I don't think
0: it ever was clear.
1: Yeah, I don't think it was at all clear. It's no wonder does he does it need um... to be? <laughs> I mean, my parents knew like every detail of my ovulation cycle because I'm that type of person. I'm like, guess what mom, I'm ovulating today. Maybe it's the time we're going to go have sex. And she's like, I don't need to know every detail about your journey, your fertility experience. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, Les is an incredible man. He is on that episode of 2020. He's also, he's a good Mainer. My mom's family is from Maine, And there's a very um, even keeled, like calmness with dealing with crisis, like we're going to be practical about this. We're not going to get too worked up about it. It's just, it can be like, it can be like a downside. Like my mom's family was not very emotionally supportive or warm or like gushing or loving or affectionate, but you know what? They're good in a crisis. Yep. And so that's how Les was, which was a practical response to it, which is, if you think that there's a chance with this girl, then just get married. Who cares? Because at the end of the day, you're going to pay child support one way or another. You might as well
0: give it a shot. Totally.
1: Yeah. He just did not know at the time what kind of individual and what kind of family his son was going to be marrying into. So let's start off by talking about this woman, Mike's baby mama. Wendy Mae Davidson. Wendy was born on July 23rd, 1978, the firstborn child of ranchers named Lloyd and Judy in San Angelo, Texas. Little brother Marshall followed the next year, and the tight-knit family rarely socialized outside of their home. Lloyd provided for the family by working at the Levi Strauss factory and Judy drew a disability check on account that she had lupus. The family made it a point to center their life on the ranch. This was a very secluded and insular upbringing. Until Wendy was in high school, it seemed like The family just very much kept themselves. They were not involved in any sort of community social organizations. They didn't belong to a church. They did not even really get together with extended family members. So they were just very, very isolated. Wendy and Marshall basically only had each other to play with until they were in school. But they also had a lot of animals. So they're on a ranch. So there's livestock, obviously. There's cows. There's horses. There's sheep. And they also had a ton of pets. So they had cats. They had dogs. I guess Lloyd had a side business selling exotic birds. So oh, wow, there were animals and pets all over this ranch. And especially Wendy took a great deal of love and care of these animals. She was very inspired to be a veterinarian from a very young age. She reportedly would do stuff like there was um, a baby raccoon whose mother had been killed by some sort of predator. And so she like adopted the baby raccoon and bottle fed it. When she found an injured bird, she managed to mend its wing. So she was very nurturing and very caring, especially with animals from a very, very early age. And the Davidsons did end up branching slightly more out when Wendy did go to high school. Judy and Lloyd became active in the school's agricultural program. Cool. Yes. They often volunteered. And that's when they got a little bit more involved with community. And both Wendy and Marshall were big fixtures in the future Farmers of America. Wendy was a smart, motivated young woman who participated in sports year-round. She was also in drama club plays. But despite her intellect and well-roundedness, she was absolutely never a popular girl. And this was because she had very poor social skills, which might have had something to do with how isolated she was growing up. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. For someone so bright, she was surprisingly immature. She also had an inability to relate to others nor did she understand the impact of how her words and actions affected other people. She is one of those people who never thinks they're wrong. And it's almost pathological the way she can turn situations around where it's not even like I'm aware that this is my fault and I'm trying to blame somebody. It was almost like she just could never even think that she was wrong. It was always somebody else's fault in this almost like wide-eyed, innocent victim way where she couldn't even believe that anyone would think that she was wrong in that situation. It's a little bizarre. So she's on the 2020 herself and we'll get into it, guys, but she is a whole ride herself. Yeah. So as a result, she wasn't very popular because obviously these are not qualities. Traits. yeah, Yeah. That endear people to you. And I guess she was a cheerleader and the other cheerleaders really didn't like her. So this caused her to feel apathy towards especially other women. And it kind of like proved her mom right. Like her mom was the one who mostly wanted to keep her kids cloistered. And it was like, yeah, you're right, mom. The outside world does suck. Everyone is mean. Like we are the best and we just need to stick with each other. Not healthy. And so this mostly like slid off of her back, you know, with the support of her family. And she did focus on her academics. She graduated second in her class, which was slightly frustrating for her because she was so close to being valedictorian. She decided to stay home for school to remain close to her family. And she attended Angelo State University in the fall of 1996. Over the summers, she would work at a veterinary clinic to gain experience, and after only two years, she was accepted into the College of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M, which is an excellent school. And even more impressive than that, she was part of the only 20% of the school's population that is fast-tracked the way she was. So she was doing great. I mean, this is a very serious program. Veterinary school is notoriously difficult. And she ended up flourishing in her coursework and in her clinical study. I guess Texas A&M is one of the few college of veterinary medicines that allow you to your freshman year start getting clinical study. So you're in it right from the get go. And she loved it. She loved working with animals. She loved everything that she was doing. However, despite being book smart and succeeding in school, as well as like just having knowledge of the birds and the bees. And, you know, I know that they bred a lot of animals on that ranch. Wendy was somehow, for some reason, a complete dope about using birth control or seemingly understanding how she could make a baby because she gets pregnant a lot. And if she's not actually pregnant, it seems like maybe she was lying about being pregnant. So we're going to get into her Relationships going on in her early 20s here. And it's not religious, the birth control. No, it's not because her family wasn't religious. They didn't even belong to a church. So I don't think that there was any moral reason for not using birth control in this situation. I cannot tell you why it was. I wish I could because this makes no sense to me. So the first time she got pregnant was when she was in her fourth year of veterinary school, and it was some guy who was a fling, and she chose to terminate the pregnancy. Not long after that, it sounded like she was having relations with three different men at the same time.
0: Ooh, that's a lot to keep up with.
1: It is. So she got pregnant during this period, and she decided to have the baby despite not knowing who the father was. And it appeared that she had first been dating this guy named Jason, and that they had broken up, and then like right at the time of the breakup, she had a one-night stand with this other guy. Named Chase, whom last name she didn't even know. And then almost immediately started a new relationship with a guy who lived in her trailer park. And the new guy's name was Ryan. And when he tried to break up with her, she said, You can't break up with me because I'm pregnant with your baby. And he thought he was infertile. He Believed it or had been told that for whatever reason, he was led to believe that he was infertile. So he said, There's absolutely no way you're pregnant. But when they went to the doctor together, it did turn out Wendy was absolutely pregnant. Now, Wendy and her family put pressure on Ryan to marry her. So they're like, Do the right thing. You have to marry her to have this baby. And Ryan and his family were like, No, we will support the baby, but we're not getting married. You can get all the child support you want out of me and I'll be a part of the baby's life, but I'm not tying myself to you. Paternity test, though. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. They're going to do one of those for sure. Okay. Now, when Ryan was not enthusiastic about getting married to Wendy, Judy, her mom, was like, well, screw this guy. Screw that situation. We don't want you in the baby's life at all. And she and Wendy cut off all contact with Ryan, who still was being led to believe that he was a father at this point. And at that point, Wendy turned to Jason, the first boyfriend I was gonna say which one Jason or Chase well she doesn't even know how to find Chase because she didn't know his last name and I don't think she got his phone number so she turns to Jason and she's like hey Jason turns out I'm pregnant with your baby and at first Jason was like I don't think that's my baby or I don't even think you're really pregnant when it turned out that it was that she was very much pregnant He was like, okay, fine. Well, then I'm going to get a paternity test as soon as the baby's born. And if it's mine, I'm actually going to take full custody because I don't think you're a good person or a good mother. So I'm going to take the baby. Shit. Yes. So at that point, Wendy and her mom were panicked because obviously they didn't want this guy taking the baby. So this was a lot of drama happening around the time that Wendy's son, Tristan, was born on October 29th, 2001. And the identity of his biological father is actually still to this day a mystery. So Ryan was DNA tested after Tristan's birth, and he was not the father. Jason also claimed that he received DNA test results that were also negative. So he said, look, I saw the test results. I am also not the father. But years later, Judy would claim in a deposition that Jason was actually the father. Well, Wendy would continue to stay on record that she actually had no idea who Tristan's father truly was. There is speculation that when Jason threatened to maybe file for sole custody, that they sent him DNA results that said he wasn't the father so that he would back off. But we do not know that for sure. That is just speculation. Okay. so again, we have no idea who Tristan's father is. But Judy did move to College Station where Wendy was in school so that she could take care of the baby while Wendy finished veterinary school. Okay. This is so intense. I mean, this is such an intense program. And then to have a newborn on top of that and no help from any father, it's a lot. After she graduated from veterinary school, she moved to Abilene, Texas to work in her first animal clinic. There, she continued her questionable dating choices. Sleeping with a teenager who was about to graduate high school. Yeah, that's her new boyfriend. Within a week of sleeping with this boy, she was pressing him to have a serious relationship, even telling him that she would move to his college to be with him in the fall. Oh, no. He declined that offer and broke up with her. Next, she got involved with a coworker's brother who dumped her after she revealed she was pregnant with his baby. Hmm. No baby ever materialized. Wendy would later claim she had a miscarriage. Then she had a very dramatic breakup with an entirely different guy, and the cops had to be called because they were fighting so badly. And then she found love again, this time by being set up by another co-worker. And the mutual friend was a guy named Joel Bird. And very soon after the couple got together, surprise, Wendy was pregnant. <laughs> so Joel actually said he was going to marry her. But I guess that when arrangements started to get underway, Judy, once again, Wendy's mom, decided that she did not like Joel. She didn't like his family. She would denigrate him to Wendy. She said that he was a lazy drug user. There is no evidence that he used drugs. And she encouraged Wendy to break it up with him. After the breakup, Wendy terminated that pregnancy as well. Okay. Then one fateful night, right after Thanksgiving 2003, Wendy went out to a bar and picked up a handsome reserved Air Force staff sergeant named Michael Severance And almost immediately got pregnant with his baby. So are all these pregnancies confirmed? We don't know. I mean, especially the one that she said was a miscarriage later. We have no idea. And then I'm assuming that Diane Fanning, you know, checked these out. She said that the other pregnancies were terminated. Yeah. Again, I do not know. I don't know exactly the sources. Like I'm not going through her Planned Parenthood records here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I didn't know if it was like they were all speculative pregnancies or if they were all actual medical pregnancies. You know what I mean? Like, well, I would assume
1: that, well, there's obviously one that resulted in a baby and then there was two or three that were terminated. And then there was one that supposedly ended in a miscarriage, which maybe is not true. Maybe it was not true. got it. Okay. So let's talk about Michael. Mike Severance was born on July 20th, 1980 in Wynn, Maine, which is a very tiny Maine town with a population of 400 people. And just like Wendy, he was the oldest and he had a younger brother. His younger brother's name was Frank. Eventually the family moved to Lee, Maine, which wasn't all of that much bigger than Wynn. They're both like, I think, Relatively north of Bangor. So it's like way up there. And in 2009, the population of Lee was 800 people. So still very tiny, but it's a very like wholesome very small, close knit community. And Michael was a very gifted athlete and outdoorsman. They said that they could not get this kid to stay inside. Like even in the bitter cold of Maine winters, he was outside like he was obsessed with racing his bike. I guess he like won some racing competition when he was only like six years old. He was already riding a bike without training wheels when he was like three and a half. Wow. Yeah, he's unbelievably coordinated. He was a Champion, downhill skier. He went to states for cross country individually because he was such a good runner. He hunted, he fished. I mean, anything that you can do that's an outdoors hobby, Mike did it. Mike's father, Leslie, was a retired Air Force veteran who worked at the Lincoln Paper and Tissue Company, which is an old paper mill that my grandfather actually worked at when he was putting himself through college in the 50s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it looks like it's closed down now, but they're—I think they're going to be rejuvenating it sooner. or at least they there were plans a couple years ago. So I'm not sure where it okay. stands today. But it was so crazy. I called my mom, and I'm like, "Is that where Grampy worked when, like, before she was born, basically?" And she's like, "Yeah." And my family had a like a camp, like a legit like camp, up to camp, camp there where there was like no heat, no air conditioning. There's an outhouse. Like it was bare bones and the most fun I ever had as a child. And it was like right in Lincoln or right around Lincoln in that area. So I feel very like the severances are are our people, Andy, my mainer people. <laughs> So, yeah, Mike's mother, Valerie, was a school bus driver, and she was described as the beating heart of the family. She was passionate. She was strong-willed. She was funny. She was kind. And she was hardworking, which made it all the more tragic when Valerie suffered a brain aneurysm and died in early 1995 when Mike was only 14 and Frank 12. Uh, Oh, my God. Yeah, Les and the boys struggled. I mean, first of all, they were grieving their mother. They're very young. She was very young. She was only 35 years old. And Les didn't really know how to take care of the house or the kids or life. Like, Valerie had been very strong willed. She had done everything. She had paid all the bills, she had cooked and cleaned. Les didn't even know his own social security number because she had just always, she was just one of those powerhouses that handled everything. And so he was completely lost in grief and didn't know how to run the household. And Mike was only 14 years old, but he was the one who held it together, who went to the bank, who, you know, he had to go with his father because he was only 14, but he knew his mom's social security number, his dad's. He was the one who went about running the family's finances after that moment. He also took care of his younger brother. He was like cooking for his younger brother. And Frank is on the 2020 episode as well. And he said that Mike was there for him in ways that you cannot calculate during this terrible moment of time that he was a 12 year old boy who was still crying himself to sleep every night because he missed his mother. And Mike was the one that was there for him every single night. He said to me, he wasn't just a brother. He was my Superman.
0: Oh, my God.
1: The Severance family's heart was slightly mended when Les met a divorced mother of two girls named Brenda, and the two soon merged their families. And Brenda's really cool. Like, they're still together to this day, but because they met each other less than two years after Valerie had passed... She never wanted to get married because she did not want the boys to feel like she was trying to replace their mother at all. She left every picture of Valerie up in the house. She was extremely sensitive to make sure that they felt supported. And so did Les. Like, I mean, they spent a lot of time talking about how much he was still grieving his late wife. And it seems like they did this meshing of the families very responsibly and with a lot of love and empathy towards the Severance family's loss. So to this day, they're not married. They're like, uh, you know, Kurt and Goldie, which I love over here. And eventually, and I guess it was a lot harder on Frank because he was so young, but eventually they began to look at Brenda as a mother for sure. And they definitely looked at their new sisters, Brooke and Nicole, as sisters. And Nicole was the closest in age to Mike. And they had a lot of similarities. Like they both liked like racing four wheelers and going outside. And she was like just as much of an outdoors person as Mike was. They became something like best friends. Like he was really close with his brother as well, of course. But like Nicole and him were really, really close. And he ended up going to kind of like a private like boys school, which there was a whole section of the book about how they afforded it. I think it was some sort of scholarship situation because Mike was so bright. So he went to this like fancy school and he was having a senior prom, but he was too shy to ask any girl out. And when Nicole found out that he wasn't going to go to a senior prom, she's like, oh no, you're going. My friend Erica and I are going to go with you. We'll be your dates and we're going to have a great time. And I guess that... (laughs) Mike was, as much as he was a little bit reserved and a little shy, he still had a great sense of humor and he clearly had a taste for flashy things because when he determined they were going to the prom, he ended up convincing a local business owner to let him drive this gigantic big rig built truck to prom and he parked it on the headmaster's lawn <laughs> Like, gigantic 18-wheeler. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the fellow students were, like, losing their mind. They're, like, clapping. Like, he's getting down with his two dates, like, on this giant truck. And I guess the headmaster was like, all right, Mike, okay, you had your 15 minutes of fame. Now get off my lawn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was a good student, and he graduated with honors from high school. And after graduation, he wasn't really sure of what he wanted to do. He loved, like, big trucks. He loved driving any type of thing. He'll drive everything. And he was like, well, maybe I want to be a long haul truck driver, but base myself here in Maine, like with you guys. And his father, Les, was like, I don't know. I just think that you should go out and see the world first before you decide and commit to staying in our small town. So he encouraged him to join the Air Force because obviously Les had been in the Air Force as well. And he thought it would give him a good opportunity to go out there, see the world, be of service. And then, you know, after a few years, he could retire and do whatever he wanted, including come back home if he chose to. So Mike decided that that was the best track for him. And he did join the Air Force. He was assigned to a military base in Abilene, Texas, and he would end up deployed to the Middle East five times throughout his years of service. Mm -hmm. He had so much enthusiasm for his work in the Air Force that one of his commanders actually told him to stop volunteering for dangerous missions. He's like, let one of these other airmen do it for once. You volunteer way too much.
0: Oh my (laughs) God.
1: (laughs) In between deployments, Mike satisfied his need for speed by racing all-terrain vehicles. He also enjoyed two-stepping and racing stock cars. its all foreign language. Well, he's basically just like an action figure. (laughs) He's like up in the plains. He's like being deployed to the Middle East. He's like racing cars. He is just, he's like an adventure junkie. And he was super duper brave. He was very well respected in the military. But unfortunately, on one chilly night in early December of 2003, he Two stepped right on over into the heart of Miss Wendy Mae Davidson, and his fate was sealed. They met at a bar, they got jiggy with it, and exchanged phone numbers after the deed was done. Wendy went about her business, which at the time was disobeying her boss's orders and inadvertently causing the death of 28 cats. Excuse me? Oh yeah, you're not gonna like this one, handy. So... Pretty much every place that Wendy worked had some issues with her. She was very insubordinate. She always, of course, thought she knew better than other people. She refused to euthanize some animals even when instructed to do so and even when either the animal was in pain, suffering, yeah, suffering, or there was a very serious health reason that they needed to be euthanized and it put the health of other animals in danger. In this case, Someone had found some stray kittens, and they were very, very ill. So this person brought them in, and it turned out that all of the kittens had terrible ringworm. Now, this is a problem because it is a potentially deadly and very, very contagious fungal infection. It can be easily transmitted in clinical settings, and it can be transmitted also to small children. So the ringworm in the kittens was far too gone at that point. They were not going to survive this. Or it was that they were so wildly contagious that it was a danger to all of the other animals in the clinic to have them there. So for whatever reason, Wendy was instructed to euthanize, I think it was like five kittens or something. She said that she did. So she notated that she had euthanized these kittens. But she did not. She instead brought them home, which was also endangering her toddler baby son at this point, too. And then she felt like she cured them. And she brought them back to the clinic. What do you mean she felt like she cured them? She said she cured them. She's like, oh, their infection is gone. She brought them back to the clinic one by one. Unfortunately, they were still highly contagious and they ended up passing the disease on to a whole bunch of other animals who already had poor immune systems because they're either recovering from surgery or they're elderly or there's some other issue if they are in the clinical setting, if they're recovering there. And because then ringworm went wild in the clinical setting, all of these animals got sick and 28 cats total died wow. It would have been five
0: and now it was 28. That's like a mirror of her social skills though.
1: Yes. She thinks she knows better. She doesn't understand the consequences of her actions. She can't relate to people. So she's not relating to why they're telling her to do this. Yep. And so she just decides that she knows better. And then she endangered and killed many people's beloved pets. So she got fired and she would go on to tell her next employer as well as her parents and even the media when her situation blew up that these employers were immoral and that they were lying about services rendered to like up and bills. Yeah. And they were basically kitten killers is what she was saying. So she spread all these lies about this perfectly nice veterinarian couple whose only mistake was hiring her in the first place. Yep. So, yeah, she was lucky enough to manage to land a new job in Lubbock, Texas, and while her stuff was still in boxes while she moved into her new place, she found out that she was once again pregnant. So I guess at this point, there was no one else in the picture, so she knew it was Mike's. I don't know if there was ever a paternity test taken, but the way that the story goes is that nobody ever questioned whether it was Mike's baby or not for whatever reason. So it's Mike's baby. And she let him know. Now, he hadn't spoken to her really since they had had their one-night fling. So he was completely shaken up by this. And again, he's 23. She's 25 years old. And he had had such a good and loving example in his parents' marriage. And then even his dad's longtime serious partnership with his stepmother that I do think he felt moved to work this out with Wendy, even though he didn't know her very well. And that's when, you know, at the beginning of the story, he did call his dad and he did receive that advice from his father. And at the beginning, he just started seeing Wendy again romantically and seeing if there could be something there. But a couple months into rekindling this relationship in a new light, he... Proposed to Wendy, and they decided to try to make it work as a family. So, Wendy broke the news to her parents that she had a new fiance and baby on the way in April of 2004, and it went disastrously. Oh my God. Judy, Wendy's mother, particularly hated Mike for absolutely no good reason. Now, to be fair to Mike, it seemed like Judy hated every single person that Wendy brought home and that nobody was good enough for her amazing little girl their bubble. <laughs> In their bubble. Yep. And friends and family and just people who knew the Davidson said that they also held a grudge against Mike for knocking up Wendy before they were married.
0: Oh, and what about the other eight times? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. Like, normally, I'd be like, yo, you know, takes two to tango. The
1: guy is equally responsible. And obviously, he still is. He clearly chose not to wear a condom. But... In this case where there's a pattern of behavior and there's a history, can her parents really be so obtuse that they're looking at him as the problem in this situation? Like he somehow deflowered their
0: innocent virginal daughter, tricked her and he's tricking her into wedlock by baby trapping her as she's currently holding her other child who she doesn't know who the father is of that child like this is so
1: ridiculous but that was apparently another one of their absurd reasons for not liking mike and judy didn't just passively dislike mike she was rude to his face she was rude behind his back and she did not let a day go by where she did not make it a point
0: to tell wendy how rude disrespectful and lazy she found mike to be it doesn't really sound lazy to me
1: Not even a little bit. It was because, like, he slept in past, like, 6 a.m., and it's blowing my mind because this guy has been deployed to the Middle East five times. I don't really think of, like, Air Force combat veterans as lazy individuals. Yeah. So what the Hateful Davidsons thought of him didn't really bother him because... Three-year-old Tristan absolutely loved Mike. He called him Daddy Mike and his Mikey, and the two bonded very, very fast. And Mike was great with Tristan. He really did love that little boy, and he looked at him like his own son, which he was about to become because Mike was going to adopt Tristan. Now, the first hiccup in the relationship came when Wendy was fired from yet another veterinary practice. How many cats did she kill this time? I don't know the details of this one, but I'm sure it's just the similar insubordination, overriding rules and regulations and just doing whatever she thought was the right thing to do. Now, she told her parents this. Now she's been fired twice. And instead of saying like, well, maybe we should take stock of what you're doing to get fired from all of your jobs. They instead said, well, definitely the problems with everybody else and screw them. Let's open your own animal clinic. I was going to ask, when are they going to do that? Yeah. So that was now. So she decided to open an animal clinic with her parents in her hometown in San Angelo. They also figured they would then get her back. They'd get to watch their grandson, Tristan, as well as the baby that's on the way. But this was really brutal for Mike because San Angelo was 90 miles away from his base in Abilene. And Wendy insisted that they needed to be a family and that he had to sacrifice for her veterinary practice. And if he wanted to be married to her and be a father, that he had to live with them. So he would end up commuting three hours a day. What? Yeah, to get back and forth from the base where he worked as an active duty Air Force member. And then when he was home, the situation was less than ideal. First, he had to live with his in-laws for a little while while they were finishing construction on the animal clinic. And his in-laws were so terrifically rude to him that it was a horrible experience. But then the second thing is when they finally did finish the animal clinic, the entire family was living in this like studio apartment inside the animal clinic. It was industrial. They had eventually a newborn because the new baby is about to be born, but also a three-year-old, two people who barely know each other living in this tiny place. They didn't have a real kitchen. They had a hot plate and they shared the bathroom with the clinic. So the place that they're showering and bathing Is the same place that sick animals are being washed in. Yeah. It's a very, very cramped and gross space. By the time baby Shane was born on September 1st, 2004, tensions were already high. It was cramped. They had a three-year-old, a newborn. Wendy was financially strapped because she and her parents had put in every last dollar. I mean, it is very expensive to open a veterinary clinic with the type of supplies you need and medical equipment. So there was a lot of stress there. Like I said, Mike was spending three hours commuting every day and his in-laws were poisonous. I mean, Judy Davidson might straight up be just one of the more detestable like side characters we've ever come across while researching the show. I couldn't even fit everything in. There's like this whole part where she's trying to like scam her way into her mother's fortune and like trying to make sure to cut her stepfather out who had been with her for many years and stuff. Judy was like an all-around hateful person to the point where that same stepfather later said that after Shane was born, she told him that she'd like to send that little bastard back to where he came from. And that's her
0: grandchild. Gross.
1: So, imagine that this person is your only influence in this insular society, kind of makes sense that maybe Wendy turned out the way she did. But we'll we'll get into it. I mean, this is also a lot of sacrifice. I mean, they had been together only for a few months. They never intended to build a family or more make that real big choice together and now he is sacrificing a lot for a 23-year-old kid. Just to be abused by her family. Yeah. But Mike was committed. He flew his dad in to meet his first grandson, and he also wanted Les to attend their wedding, which took place only two weeks after Shane's birth on September 13th, 2004. Wendy's parents were incredibly rude to Les during his visit to Texas, and the wedding sounded terrible. It was... (sighs) It's just their immediate families who witnessed Mike and Wendy being married by a Justice of the Peace. So it's literally just like less her parents, I think it was her brother, the Justice of the Peace, and maybe like one other person. It was very, very small. But when Wendy said, I do, Judy made a huge scene by stomping out of the room in tears and crying and saying, oh, no. Oh, my God just so immature after the ceremony both sides of the family were supposed to meet at a steakhouse for the reception dinner and she had still been crying at this point judy went with lloyd and they took tristan as well but judy's like loudly crying as the like car pulls away and then everyone else went and got to the steakhouse and they're just sitting there for like ever waiting for wendy's parents to show up so they could get this reception dinner going And at that point, Judy called and said, we're not coming. We can't make it. And just canceled on them without
0: like any reason or anything. So confusing because I feel like she was like hand-holding Wendy to go to the trailer home and try to get that one guy to marry her. And then, so it's like, what? I don't understand. And also, this guy is great. He's in the Air Force. He's a war hero. What more could you want? Does she not want to let go of Wendy? Maybe it's more of a control thing. I think it's definitely got to be a control
1: thing because you okay. you could not get, I mean, the only other thing that is possible is that he was from Maine and he was like an outsider. None of Wendy's family have ever even traveled outside of Texas. Okay. So there might be a big us versus them mentality. At least the other guy was from Texas. Maybe there's this fear. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but Judy does seem to display some paranoia about somebody taking her grandchildren away from her. Remember, there's that whole Jason thing where maybe she doctored DNA results. We don't know for sure to keep the baby just totally to herself. And there's some comments that she makes later on that suggests like she was scaring Wendy into thinking that if it didn't work out, that maybe Mike would try to take the baby and get full custody and live in Maine. That might've been why she didn't like Mike is because he was from another part of the country. But I just can't imagine being less. Could you imagine that you are this even keeled, good hearted person and your son's doing the right thing? You guys have talked about it. You're supporting him. And then you go down to this wedding and the other in-laws are not only rude, but like dramatically immature. So he was like, I can't say I enjoyed meeting them, but I wanted to support my son no matter what. And I have to say I was a little bit worried for his marriage because... He was living in the lion's den. He's literally living in the animal clinic where they all worked because it's all their money. And like Judy could not technically take a paycheck because she was getting disability money. So you can't like work and get disability. Yeah. But she was doing it for free. Yeah. So she was just like volunteering essentially. So she was there every day, day in, day out where this poor guy lives, totally berating him
0: after she ruined their wedding. After commuting an hour and a half each way. Yeah, after commuting an hour and
1: a half so that he could give his wife the life she wanted in her hometown with her dreams. Oh, yeah. There was no honeymoon period here. They were just in it. I mean, they got married with a two-week-old baby. And there was just so much financial stress about getting new clients and starting to get profitable because they had sunk so much money into this animal clinic. So it was pretty soon they were constantly bickering because Judy thought that Mike was married to Wendy. So therefore he should be participating in the family businesses as well. So even though he's commuting three hours a day and he is working very hard as active duty airman, she still thought he should be like waking up at the crack of dawn and taking care of animals and donating all of his time any spare moment he has to the animal clinic. Even saying like derogatory things like, oh, he's just lazy. Like he won't do any work at the animal clinic. He'll just take the baby and go. Well, you know what? Taking care of a baby isn't exactly easy work either, lady. (sighs) Judy was like, he doesn't help out around the clinic at all. It's like he works like a 12-hour shift and then then has to commute three hours. And then in like the nine hours he has left in his day, you want him just
0: toiling away unreal
1: yeah so mike was stoic but he did worry about the family dynamic he told a friend that he thought his mother-in-law was trying to kill him the friend of course thought he was joking at that point around christmas wendy also joked that if she ever discovered that mike was unfaithful she'd have him on the table at her clinic and euthanize him hilarious joke. Diane Fanning wrote about this situation. While in the Air Force, Mike participated in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He landed in Afghanistan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Uzbekistan. He took place in 515 sorties and was a part of 232 peacekeeping missions, achieving a 99% departure reliability rating and accumulating 922 flying hours as a crew chief. He survived the perils of war,
0: but he would not survive five months of marriage to Wendy Davidson. Jesse, you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Andy, Shopify has to be one of the companies that I know you love most. It is absolutely true. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses and Shopify has been such an important part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify
1: simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street, to around the globe, the tools they need to succeed. We're actually
0: (laughs) switching our merch store to Shopify right now. I cannot wait to get that up and running. Other favorite things about Shopify include you're able to design your own website from scratch. They allow really reduced shipping rates for UPS so that you can get big company discounts for shipping. They allow you to track inventory. The pictures are great when they are posted online. Everything is awesome. You can use their multiple apps to shop your Instagram. The possibilities with Shopify are absolutely endless.
1: With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest,
0: and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by
1: Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder
0: for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder.
1: Mike was doing his best to keep the family together, though he did tell another friend that they were struggling and he did not know how much longer he could keep it together. He's like, the stuff with her family just makes it so untenable that I don't know how long I can keep doing this. One thing that he was looking forward to and could potentially rejuvenate the relationship was that they were finally planning an upcoming trip to Maine. So they were going to go to Maine for a whole week and he was going to get to bring his sons, because he really considered like Tristan a son at this point, back home to his parents and they would get to see where he grew up. And also he could take them sledding and snowmobile riding and all of that fun stuff that he grew up doing. And the kids had never seen snow. Tristan was like three or four at this point and he had never seen snow. And so it was really exciting and literally the entire community of Lee Maine was looking forward to it because he's very much their like prodigal son. He is, he's a war hero. He's a, big member of this very close-knit community. And also, I mean, you know this, whenever you have a baby, everyone wants to meet your baby, see your baby, hold the baby. So this homecoming was very highly anticipated. Brenda bought the boys snowshoots. She made sure that they had snowsuits. She had made sure they had a sled. Like she was getting very excited as it was like her um, second grandchild, because actually Nicole had a baby like a month before Shane was born. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. So it was cute, too, because the cousins were going to be the same age. It was really exciting. Unfortunately, this trip would never take place. Leading up to the departure date, Mike was on a two-week leadership training course with the Air Force, so he had to leave the planning and packing to Wendy. Wendy did not buy one stitch of cold-weather clothing. She didn't pack a thing. There was no indication that she planned to take this trip at all. The only thing she did do, the only thing that people said that they could report that it seemed like she was planning on making the trip was that she was arguing with her mother all the time about it. Her mother thought that it was very bad business to close the clinic for a week when this was going to be mid-January. They had just opened it, I think, in October or November. So she was like, you're the only veterinarian here, so like we have to close the clinic, and it looks just bad for business. But... Wendy argued that it was important to Mike and it was important for their kids to see where he grew up. So they went back and forth about this. And when that failed, the business angle... That's when she went in on Wendy about how they couldn't trust the severances and that she didn't even like know if things were going to work out with her husband. And maybe this whole thing, this whole going to Maine vacation was actually just a plot on the severances to get Shane in Maine. And then they were going to legally pull some maneuver where they couldn't take the baby out of the state. And so she's like, if you take that baby to Maine, that baby might stay in Maine forever and you'll never see him again. So she's like now trying to scare Wendy. And this did heighten Wendy's anxiety and suspicion and of course made her appear not well to her husband because if she's like unloading on Mike, like, are your parents gonna steal my baby? He'd be like, what are you crazy? We're going for a visit to see my family. So a lot of Wendy's issues I think stems from her relationship with her parents and her mother in particular. So by the time Mike returned from this two week training course, Wendy was full of anger about all of these phantom sins, these conspiracy theories that her mom was planting in her head. And she ended up blowing up at him over something really inconsequential. Like she started screaming at him because he was helping out in the clinic and he like put a puppy or a dog or something on the table. And then he walked away to go get something and she's like, You're just going to leave the dog on the the table like that so he could injure himself? And he's like, all right. And he just calmly got up and instead put the dog in a crate, closed the crate. But when Wendy had screamed at him, Shane, the baby, had woken up. And so he's like, I'm just going to take the baby. I'm getting out of here. So he took the baby and he went to a friend's house in Abilene. And it was just like a good opportunity for both of them to clear the air, get a drive. And he did tell her that he was going to see friends in Abilene, but she tearfully called her mom. And between her and her mom, there was
0: like this hysteria that he had kidnapped Shane. Oh, my God. I don't think if you're the parent, it's kidnapping.
1: No, he is the father of this baby. They're not separated. There's no custodial issues here. He can take his baby for an afternoon to go visit a friend. He was home by 4.30 p.m. With the baby. This is not like even he went overnight with the baby. And they acted at this point like, oh, he's a flight risk. He's going to take that baby and he's going to run someday. I mean, Judy really hammered this in Wendy's head. So the next day was a Friday and they were supposed to be leaving very, very early on Sunday morning. And it looked like Judy took the boys a lot. So they slept over at her house anywhere from like two to three nights a week. And one night that they always slept over was Saturday night so that this young couple could have a date night. So they always got a date night on Saturday nights. But seeing as they were going to have to leave at like five in the morning on Sunday, they decided to do their date night on Friday. So even though they just had all this drama go down where they're basically acting like he kidnapped the baby, the very next day, she's like, I'll take the kids. You guys go out on a nice date. Let's go get some oysters. Yeah. Well, it wasn't quite oysters because they went to the Buffalo Wild Wings across the street, which I don't know. I gotta say, I love a good Buffalo Wild Wings. So they go to this Buffalo Wild Wings that's directly across this like highway. It kind of seemed like from the animal clinic and they had dinner there. And then afterwards they went to this other bar. It was called um, the, the Graham Street Tavern or Graham Street Bar. And they end up, having a great time they drank they danced everyone who saw them said that mike was especially in a great mood he was so excited to go home and see his family i was just gonna say yeah yeah so he's in a really good mood he thinks like this that he's having a fun time with wendy for once like they're actually like unwinding so they come home and only wendy and god know for sure what happened next. But the state of Texas was able to reconstruct what they believe had happened. So we're going to go with that. When Wendy and Mike got home that night, Wendy offered to grab Mike a beer, one more drink as a nightcap. And when she did so, she dropped five veterinary phenobarbital pills into the beer. The drug is highly soluble, and it's likely that the strong flavor of Mike's beer would have masked the slightly medicinal taste of the pills. This would, of course, ensure that Mike was completely knocked out. As the effects kicked in, he simply thought he had drank too much and he needed to go to bed. So he went and lay down in the bed. And when Wendy was satisfied that he was completely passed out, she slammed a syringe full of D a common veterinary euthanizing solution, into her husband's chest.
0: Oh my God.
1: The liquid contained a lethal dose of pentobarbital, and it would have taken only minutes for the drugs to shut down Mike's respiratory functioning and his heart. Till death do us part had arrived less than five months after their wedding day. When she was satisfied that Mike was dead, Wendy got his pickup truck and backed it up to the rear of the clinic. She then dragged Mike's body and then like kind of half hoisted him up and then got into the truck and then pulled him into the bed of the pickup truck. Did they have this recorded? No, she later admits to part of this. Okay. So you'll see why. But yeah, she later reports to the disposal of Mike's body. She got a brake drum and a concrete block from the garage. And then she covered the body with a tarp. So she then drove to the neighborhood where her parents lived. And over there, there was a ranch that was owned by a family friend. And this was where the Davidsons kept some of their horses. So she was very familiar with this private land. And she was allowed access of it because they often went on the ranch to take care of their horses. So she pulls into this property and there was a large pond there that they called a stock tank in Texas because they stock it with new fish every year. So that's why they call this pond a stock tank. She then pulled over. She looped baling twine around Michael's neck and attached the brake drum to that. And then she looped fishing wire around his left leg and attach that to the cinder block. She then dumped her baby's father who had fought for this country and sacrificed so much to be with her and raise their child into the pond, throwing his body away as though it were trash. Unreal. Unreal. You're correct. This is just, I mean, he didn't even see it coming. This is no deed goes unpunished. Horrible. Yeah. He was just trying to do the right thing. So the clinic was open on Saturdays. They had like shortened hours on Saturdays. And Wendy's mother, Judy, came to the clinic. And I guess Lloyd did some work outside of the clinic that day as well. And they had no idea where Mike was. They asked her if he was going to be helping out at the clinic that day. And she said that he drank too much the night before and that he was actually in bed sleeping it off, which of course, Judy was like, yeah, of course, because he's a good for nothing, you know? And. I guess at that point, Tristan, I think it was the older son, was like getting a little cranky. And so she took him home at like noon. Judy took him home to her house and like gave him lunch and had a nap. And then later when Wendy closed the clinic, she went to her parents' house for dinner where she had dinner with both of her sons and her parents. And she and Judy continued arguing about the trip to Maine, which was supposed to be occurring the very next day. And she did not indicate to her parents that it wasn't happening, although at some point during that day, she had actually called the airline and canceled the tickets. So she does not reveal to them that she's absolutely not going, but she has already canceled the tickets. Now, after dinner, she comes home, takes the kids home, goes to bed. The next day at five in the morning, she calls Les Severance's home, and I think he was at So I think that she ended up reaching Brenda and she tells them that she doesn't know where Mike is. Maybe he's on his way by himself, but he's not with his family. And so she's not going to come. And they're like, what? Meanwhile, Wendy would later claim that when she came home that night, Saturday night from dinner, that she discovered a locked clinic door and inside the animal clinic portion of the building, not their apartment. She found Mike's dead body on the floor and that because the doors were locked and only her family had keys and because her family hated him so much that she assumed that one of her family members had killed Mike. So therefore she disposed of the body as a favor to her murderous family members and she did not kill Mike. Oh, that's what she's going with here. That's really interesting. I am like really confused when people try to go with the old, it wasn't me, I didn't kill him, but I found a dead body. And you know what you have to do with a dead body? Immediately dispose of it and not call the police. <laughs> There's a FBI profiler on the 2020 episode. And he's like, when an innocent person finds a dead body, they don't dispose of it. They call 911. Yeah.
0: And even if you think that one of your family members was responsible for the death, you still should call 911. You still do. You don't you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't. Yeah. No. Sorry, honey. This whole thing is ridiculous.
1: So Brenda and Les now are coping with getting this phone call that she's like, surprise, we're not coming. And also she's super casual. Like, I don't know where Mike is. I don't know. I guess maybe he's coming to you guys. Maybe he's not. I don't know. So Brenda's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. So she calls the airline to be like, did Sergeant Mike Severance make this flight? And the airline's like, no, because somebody called us yesterday and canceled the flights. Uh, So they already know she's lying because she was like, maybe he's on the flight. It's like, how could he be on a flight you canceled? And then the next tip off is that Les is trying desperately to locate his son because obviously he would not blame Mike for running away from this crazy family and this terrible situation he's in. Like he's like if you need a break, like I get it. And so he's trying to just reach him and be like I understand no matter what, you just come home, like we'll work it out. And the cell phone is ringing and ringing and ringing and finally somebody answers and Les said that his heart obviously was like, "Oh, thank God, he's answering the phone." That that immediate thing, but it wasn't Mike's voice. It was unfortunately, Marshall, Wendy's brother, and he didn't even know that it was Mike's phone. He said, oh, I just found this cell phone in my truck. I didn't even know it was Mike's. And he's like, well, I'm Mike's dad. And this is Mike's cell phone. Do you have any idea where he is? And he said, no, Wendy said he ran off. I guess, I don't know. He must've left his phone in my truck. So that's super sketchy. Yeah.
0: I'd be losing my mind right now. Yeah.
1: And of course, his family is very concerned
0: because you would not run away and leave your phone or your baby or your baby. Yeah. Especially when you've like already sacrificed X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so now this is Sunday when they're finally getting wind
1: that he's gone. And they also said on the 2020 episode that Wendy reportedly just slept all day. She was like, they were trying to reach her. They were trying to figure out what the next steps were. They're
0: trying to call the police. That's exactly that guilty person. The
1: guilty thing we were talking about, the guilty conscience, we were talking about it with um, Mary Winkler. And I told you it was in the Homicide book by David Simon, which is when a guilty party is finally captured or it's out there, what happened, they're just exhausted and they go to sleep.
0: So she slept all day and... Who's a lazy piece of shit now, huh?
1: Yeah, and Mike's sister-in-law is on the 2020 being like, if my husband was missing, I wouldn't be sleeping. I'd be out there looking. I'd be at the police station. I'd be doing everything I could. So all of this stinks to high heaven. And after the severances put pressure on Wendy, she and her father did go to the police to fill a missing persons report. I think this was on Monday at this point. In the report, Wendy suggested that Mike had been drinking heavily and that he was scared about an upcoming deployment. She said that he was so terrified of going back to the Middle East that he was talking about deserting and running away to Canada. She also says on the 2020 episode that she claimed that Mike had been abusing caffeine pills and taking ephedra. But when she says this on the 2020, it is so obvious she's lying. Like, she's such a bad liar. When she says certain things to him, to the host, She's looking, like, straight ahead, and it looks straightforward. And then there's certain questions he asks her where her eyes just all of a sudden go all over the place, and she's, like, looking down, and she's looking up, and she's not making eye contact while she's telling him something. And it's just, to me, it does not take a, like, a body language specialist to see that she's a lying son of a bitch through her teeth, yeah. Exactly. So all of his friends said, and family said, this. there's no way that that was the case. This guy was never out of control. He was never drunk. He was like, you know, maybe two beers at the Buffalo Wild Wings type of guy. He was not a big partier. He never abused drugs. It wouldn't even make sense. So he weighed 155 pounds. He's not a big guy. Why would he be taking Ephedra, which is a weight loss drug? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And also the fact that she's saying that he was terrified of deploying a sixth time when he's been on all of these missions. He's always volunteered for them. Everyone in the military said that was total bullshit. He loved being in the Air Force. So the Severances were sick with worry and they were feeling super powerless. And even more so when Les called the San Angelo Police Department to see what they were doing to find his son. And one officer reportedly said to him, we'll probably find him shacked up somewhere with a whore. Don't worry. Oh my God. Yeah, that definitely put a bad taste in the Severance's mouth as it would my own if I was trying to, from across the country, locate my son who I was worried about and they would say something like that about him. And like, Les felt like he had to like defend his, he's like, he's not like that. My boy's not like that, you know? And it's like, you don't have to defend anything. That person shouldn't have said that to you and I hope they got fired.
0: Yeah, that person... Yeah, needs to be fired.
1: So he was really worried. Now, obviously, he's getting the feeling that the local police department isn't going to be doing anything about this. So he calls the Air Force. He calls Mike's commanding officer and says, look, I'm really worried about the situation. He was supposed to come home to Maine. He's not here. Nobody can reach him. I don't like what's going on. I think there's something sketchy with his wife's family or his wife and the police station isn't doing shit. The police station is not helping me out even a little bit. Is there anything you can do? And his commanding officer said, look, there's nothing I can do until he comes back and he's technically AWOL or doesn't come back rather and he's AWOL because he had taken a week leave to go to Maine. So technically at this point, he's on leave. So there's nothing they can do until he's scheduled to come back and then they can report him AWOL and they can start... They can launch an investigation with him basically as a criminal saying that he is in a desertion investigation. But at least they're looking for him. So that's good enough for Les Severance. He doesn't care if they're pretending he's some sort of criminal as long as they're looking for him. And his commanding officer also did his own set of interviews and was like, there's no way. There's just no way that this guy would just up and leave. He wouldn't do that to his kid. He wouldn't do that to his fellow military service members. He just would not do it. On Tuesday, January 18th, two days after Wendy said her husband disappeared, she did something very strange. She filed for divorce.
0: This woman, this thought process, is literally her own
1: species and her own worst enemy. She's making some profoundly
0: bad choices. Yes, Over and over and over again. This is not like how humans... Think and process and do things. Yeah. And
1: I mean, you guys can let me know if you watch the 2020. There just seems to be something off in her because it is almost like guileless the way she's like lying and pivoting things in her head. And this, like, she has this like wide eyed, like weird, like baby girl type of affectation going on. I'm like, is she like developmentally off or something? Did I miss something? because it just doesn't make sense the, what she's doing. So she also obtained a restraining order against Mike. Now, on the 2020, she says she didn't want to. She said that her parents made her go through with this less than 48 hours after he disappeared. After they killed him. Yeah, after they killed him. Now, there's some conjecture about whether it's possible that Judy and Lloyd or Judy or Lloyd or just Judy killed Michael and somehow Wendy's story is legit. But I really do not think that's the case. And it is because not only did they make her file for divorce two days after he disappeared, but also Judy was recorded on camera talking to the police, telling them, so much shit about Michael saying, oh, he's a lazy good for nothing. Like, I never liked him. Like, I hope he doesn't come back. I hope that he never returns. You know, he's like, we don't need him. And number one, she was very paranoid about him taking her grandchild. So I think that the divorce and the restraining order makes sense. Because if he ran off, she doesn't want him to be able to legally come back, get the child and leave. So it would make sense that she thinks there's a very real concern about this. So we're going to go through and legally take care of this right now, whether you want to or not, Wendy, we're doing it. That would imply that she thought there was a concern, which means she thought Mike was still alive. If she had killed him, it would be really dumb to have her file for divorce two days after he goes missing, and then even dumber to talk so much smack about him if you were soon to be a murder suspect. Yeah. So that's why I don't actually think Judy was involved directly in the actual murder. So when Mike is officially AWOL, the Air Force launched an investigation alongside the Texas Rangers. They were exhaustive in trying to track him down. They went through his phone records. They called every single person that he had talked to on the phone in the last month. They went through his financials with a comb. They literally searched his computer, his cell phone records. They went to every airline and checked every manifest to see if he had somehow gotten a flight. They went to every uh, rental car company in the area. And there was like one lead there because his truck was supposed to be getting fixed. So he had um, made a rental car reservation, but he had never picked it up. So like they looked at everything because the first thing they have to do is eliminate that he actually wasn't just deserting, which is Technically, the point of this investigation It's not to find a missing person or a homicide victim. It is to f- ideally find a live deserter. But I mean, there was no stone left unturned, and everything pointed to the fact that he was no longer existing because if he was, he would be using his credit cards, he would be using his cell phone. They would have found some trace of him, and there's not. and these are professionals I mean, these are professional military human trackers. (laughs) So they decided to now turn to the person who last claimed to see him alive and the person who also happened to be the most statistically likely to have murdered him, his wife, Dr. Wendy Mae Davidson. So Wendy did submit to a polygraph and she did agree to let her computer be searched, but her polygraph results were inconclusive. Diane Fanning points out, though, that the reason that polygraph results are not admissible in court is because you can fake the results and that there are even websites and books devoted to teaching people how to fake lie detector results. A quick search of Wendy's search history showed that Dr. Davidson was one of those people looking for exactly that information. She had Googled how to beat lie detector test. (laughs) <laughs> and that wasn't all she had searched for. She had also searched for how do bodies decompose in water? Hmm. Yeah. So now the Air Force and the Rangers had a pretty good idea that Mike would be found in a body of water. Meanwhile, Wendy had realized by now that the authorities were onto her and that she had also massively screwed up because there was a decent chance that Mike's decomposing body was filling with gases as she tried to get herself out of the situation and would soon rise to the surface because she hadn't actually tied him down that much. Like a baling twine and a little bit of fishing wire can snap very easily. So this dumbass goes back to the pond in the middle of the night, rows over to where she can already see where Mike's body is rising up, she was not able to pull it onto the boat because it was still attached to some of the weights, but she did manage to push it to this muddy bank. She then docked the boat, got out, took a boning knife, and proceeded to stab Mike's body in the chest and stomach 41 times. She admits to this on 2020. She admits to desecrating her war hero husband's body. She said that she was trying to release the gases. Uh Uh-huh. But 41 times indicates overkill. Psychosis. I mean, unhinged. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. It's just really hard, too. That's really hard work over and over. Think about raising that knife over and over again. 41 times. So this is insane. This is just... I don't even know how to describe her state of mind right now. She then decided to, she had brought more cinder blocks. She put the cinder blocks and the body into the boat, goes back out to the middle of the pond. This time she zip tied the cinder blocks to his body.
0: I wish the cinder blocks
1: just sunk her boat and she couldn't swim. I know that would have been nice. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. The Karma Fairy visited this one. (laughs) In conclusion. I do have to find a story where somebody dies while trying to get rid of the body. Because that would just be instant Karma Fairy. Yeah. Or like dies as they're trying to like kill someone. To murder someone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to look out for that. So she does manage to get him now. And he into the water. He sinks all the way to the ground this time. Because she also put 145 pounds of cinder blocks Tied to his body this time, and he only weighed 155 pounds in life, so it's pretty good chance that he's going to stay down there now. So she she leaves like skip a dee doo dah. I just did the perfect murder, no problems here. But yeah, she had not planned the perfect murder, not by a long shot. And that very night, a handyman had actually identified her car and witnessed her driving up to the pond. Unfortunately, he had not followed her to see what she was doing because it wasn't uncommon that she was on the property,
0: but he knew exactly who she was. Also, that would have been like terrifying for him.
1: Yeah. If he's just like, oh, I think I'll go say hi to Wendy. Oh my God. (laughs) She's just stabbing and he wouldn't know if the body was dead or alive in the bushes. Yeah. So the Air Force had determined at this point that Wendy or her parents must have done something to Mike. And they felt like it was going to be either Wendy or Lloyd or Judy who could potentially lead them to where Mike was, dead or alive. So they decided to put tracking devices on Wendy's, Judy's, and Lloyd's vehicles. At this point, the Texas Ranger was like, I'm a little nervous about this, guys. Like, that might fly in the military that you just, like, willy-nilly put
0: tracking devices on people's cars. But we're planning on just finding her at a whorehouse, so... (laughs) You know, I don't think you get to talk anymore, Mr. Ranger.
1: Well, it was the the Texas Rangers are different than the local PD. So this guy was there.
0: Okay, whatever.
1: (laughs) Maybe they should educate their law enforcement brethren, perhaps. So in any case, he's like, if we have to gear up for a civilian court case, this could be a problem. But the military was like, no, this completely falls in our jurisdiction of looking for a deserted service member or a dessertee, whatever you would call it. And we get to do this. So uh, at that point, the the Texas Ranger was like, all right, let's do this. So they throw the trackers in all the cars. And very soon after they do this, they get a hit on Wendy going back to this pond on private property. Now, this was not the occasion in which she went back and stabbed Michael. It appeared to be just a go drive up, park for a little while, check to make sure the body wasn't coming to the surface, get back in her car. But it was enough for them to be suspicious that this was the spot because they believed that she put him in a body of water somewhere. And obviously she was checking back up on the disposal area. So they ended up bringing her back in for questioning at this point, And she pretty much had an answer for everything. So they asked her about the Google results. They say, you Googled how to beat a polygraph. You want to explain that? And she says, oh, you know, I'm just very scientifically minded. I am so intellectually interested in all of these aspects. So of course, I wanted to know how they work, how people can beat them, how reliable they are. And they're like, okay, and so what about when you Googled how a body decomposes in water? She said, well, you know, you guys were searching this creek out back, and I was really scared that you were going to find him in the creek, and I just wanted to prepare myself emotionally and mentally for what he might look like after having been in the water. Oh, Mm, Tricky, tricky. So she's got answers on answers for them. She was prepared for this. And then... They go, okay, so you want to tell us about this ranch, this ranch you like to go to on uh, Terrell Sheen's property? We noticed that you like to go to this uh, little pond over there. Want to tell us what's going on over there? And at that point, she had no answers. It was like she went from cocky, sure, pleasant, to nervous, shut down, clearly agitated, because she thought that they had no idea about where she had dumped Michael's body. So she got a phone call. They had been interrogating her, I think, at the actual animal clinic. And she ended up getting a phone call with an emergency patient. So they're like, you know what, it's fine. You take this patient. We've done enough for today. And they know that they've now planted that seed and that she is going to be freaking out. So she,
0: I guess, saw this emergency patient, which is kind of rude for them to like allow her to see the emergency patient because she probably wasn't in her best mental state. And I feel bad for the pet.
1: Well, yeah, the guy who brought his dog in was like, I thought she was super rude and not a very good vet. But like he didn't know the circumstances of what she was thinking about how she was about to get nailed for murder the entire time he was treating his Pomeranian or whatnot. As soon as they left, they called... And I think it was, there were some Air Force agents there, but there was also some local PD too. They got officers stationed around the ranch just to make sure that she couldn't come back and try to move the body. And they didn't think she was going to be that dumb because literally they just told her they're going to be like searching this ranch. And they were like, there's no way that she's that stupid, that she's just going to show up that very evening and try to move the body. But she was that stupid.
0: (laughs) She was. Oh, where's your answers now?
1: I know. So she, as soon as she's done with her emergency patient, she hightails it over to the guy's ranch. And there was a couple Air Force agents posted at the entrance. And she tried to just go by them. And they're like, excuse me. No, you cannot come here. I'm sorry. We have to have like this area cordoned off because we are about to have a major search. Like this is going to be a crime scene. And she tried to like argue with them. She's like, I have to go see my horse. I got to like go do this. I'm allowed on the property. You have to let me in. And they were like, no, lady, sorry, back off. And at that point, they said that she like made a weird sound and like her face kind of like crumpled up like she was crying, trying to conjure tears. And then she like took off because they weren't letting her anywhere onto the property. So at this point, she's panicked. She's got the baby in the back of the car. She's freaking out. She's freaking out about this. Meanwhile, this is the moment when the Air Force was like, yeah, we're not going to find this guy alive. Like, we could just hand it to civilian law enforcement because it's a criminal case. These people did something to him. He's going to be found in his pond. And the Air Force can officially close their investigation and say that he did not desert the military. So meanwhile, Marshall was having dinner with his parents when he got a phone call from his sister, Wendy. So it seems like she was driving around after she could not get access to this ranch. She is driving around in a panic. She calls her brother. She tells her brother that somebody is chasing her. And she's really scared for her life and that he needs to come and meet her in the cemetery because she is going to try to head them off and make it to the cemetery, which was... I believe, relatively close to where he was with her parents. So Marshall is a game warden. He is part of law enforcement. So he goes on to eventually lose his job about this because he tries to protect his sister. But he straps on his pistol and he leaves first in his car to go because he's worried it might be a dangerous situation from what she's describing. And his parents end up following later on in their own vehicle And he comes out to the cemetery to meet her, and there's no one chasing her. She's just, like, pacing around the cemetery, like, stomping around their grandfather's grave, like, freaking out. And he's like, what is going on? And now he knows that things are weird because, obviously, Mike is missing. They're all having to talk to the police and talk about their relationships and stuff. And she's like, okay, well, you're really not going to believe me, but it's true. And he's like, what is? And she's like, I know Mike's dead because... I found him, she says, I didn't kill him. I thought it was one of you guys. And so I did it for you, for you guys. I got rid of the body. And now I think they know where he is and I'm gonna get in trouble, even though I didn't kill him. I didn't do it. And he's like, what in the sweet hell are you talking about? And also he's like, why are you telling me this? I am law enforcement.
0: I have got to report this now. Oh my so, God, this poor guy.
1: His life sucked too because he did end up, he was very much torn between his parents and his sister being angry with him because he does call it in. He calls a detective right away and says, You need to come on out to the cemetery. My sister's here and she's got something to tell you. And then Judy and Lloyd pull in and they've got the grandkid in the car. So they get out and they're going, Wendy, what the hell is going on? And she again tells them, I know you guys killed him and I was just covering it up for you. And they're like, we certainly never killed anyone. What do you mean you just got rid of the body? Like, so she's telling her parents that. Then finally, a detective does come. Marshall pulls him aside. He said, this is what my sister just told me. You're going to find his body in this pond. How does he lose his job if he called them right away? There was some evidence that he was supposed to turn over to the authorities and he refused. And then there were some other complicating factors like he was trying to get a reassignment because he was going to have to move back to his hometown to take care of potentially Wendy's kids while she's in prison and help his parents out. And I don't know if they, they like couldn't or didn't want to reassign him. There was just a lot of complicating factors going around on this. And he obviously would not have lost his job had he not been caught up in all of this. So even though he's participating now, I think that there was some unwillingness to continue to cooperate. Because he also said, I'm not investigating my sister. Do not make me do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they shouldn't anyway. It's conflict of interest.
1: So while Marshall is talking to the detective, Wendy shouted, I didn't kill him, but somebody did. I thought one of you did it. I moved the body to protect you. And then Wendy Mae Davidson was arrested for the murder of her husband.
0: Yeah, I'd say.
1: The search warrant for the pond was expedited and within eight and a half hours, expert divers had discovered Michael's body. The Severance family was notified, and it was a crushing blow to the family and also the community at large, which was extremely tight-knit. And this was their Air Force hero son of the town. And of course, everyone had known that he went missing. So this was just the worst possible outcome. And it was really hard, especially for Les and Frank, who had lost their mother and wife at such a young age. And now here is Mike, who was only 24 years old, had already done so much for the country and for the world and had so much in front of him. Yep. And so to also be robbed of his life so early was... Very, very traumatic. I mean, they're both on the 2020, and you can just see the immense pain in their eyes that just never goes away. And the fact that when your son is active duty combat deployed, you prepare yourself emotionally for the worst. But the fact was that he wasn't killed by enemy fire, he was killed by the woman that had sworn to love him forever only five months earlier. It's just such a betrayal. It was also really sickening for them that Mike's son, Shane, was in the custody of his poisonous in-laws who had treated Mike so despicably. So Les used literally everything he had. And we talked about that recently in the, you know, Dr. Jan Canty interview about the unknown cost of homicide and how much this was costing his family. And on top of that, now he has to start a very costly custody battle with the Davidsons to try to get Shane to come and live with him in Maine instead. And this is money that this family did not have. So luckily, the community really supported Les and Brenda. They helped raise money for flights and for his legal battle. And I think that there was also a firm that covered like almost all of the legal costs except for like what they like had to bill like to pay their own employees or something. So this community did come together to try to offset those costs. But I mean, we're talking about grief and also insane financial hardship for this family right now. Meanwhile, with Wendy not copping to the killing, the medical examiner had a mystery on their hands. Though the corpse had been thoroughly ravaged by those 41 stab wounds, it was clear that the wounds had occurred posthumously. So they had to figure out what exactly had killed Mike. There was obviously no other very obvious damage. And because they knew Wendy was a vet, they knew exactly what to test for. To... No one's surprised. When the toxicology report came back in a couple months later, Mike's body contained a fatal amount and combination of pentobarbital, Benethin, and phenobarbital. I don't know, guys. I don't know that middle one. Let's just let's go with some euthanasia type drugs. So the authorities received a search warrant for Wendy's practice, and they discovered that basically Wendy had falsified two different records for two animals. One was for the drug that made him sleepy, which she ascribed to a small chihuahua named Wheezy, a chihuahua.
0: Is it a real chihuahua or a fake chihuahua?
1: Oh, it was a real Chihuahua named Wheezy. He just did not receive a grown man's amount of phenobarbital to treat his seizures. And there was another dog that she said she had euthanized, but she had not. The dog was alive and well but she had written this down in a way to hide where the drugs had gone, clearly. She did not do a good job. She did not. It was very easy for them to find. And in fact, the amounts between those two files were exactly the amount in combination and dosage that you would need to kill a 155-pound man. I really just do not know how she continues to say that she wasn't the one who killed him when this is the autopsy report because she is a veterinarian who completely willingly admits that she found him in her clinic where her home also is and that he had been killed so well by the correct dosage and everything and injected properly as only a trained veterinary medicine professional could do. And she's still like at the end of the day saying, but it wasn't me, my house, my drugs. The only person in my family who knows how to administer these drugs is me, but it certainly wasn't me. It defies reality. She also tried eventually to switch her story to I don't know, maybe he killed himself. Okay, maybe it wasn't my family. Maybe he decided to use my
0: drugs. I can't believe she just so quickly blames her family.
1: Yeah, her family was not really happy with her. There was a lot. So Diane Fanning has a lot of their prison phone conversations transcribed in the book, A Poisoned Passion. And she is just. She is not in this world because these phone conversations, her parents are like so frustrated with her and it's like talking to a brick wall. She's like, in one of them, she says, well, they can't take Mike's body to bury him in, why would they take him to Maine? And his, her brother's like, because he's was born and raised there because that's where his family is. She goes, his family's here in Texas with me and the boys. He needs to be buried here in Texas with me. And her brother is like, no, I think that he needs to be with his family. They have a right to bury their son. And then she goes on later talking to her mom about how she is petitioning the prosecutor to allow her to attend the funeral in Maine, to get out of jail, to go to the funeral in Maine. And her mother's going, Wendy, that's a terrible idea. Like, you shouldn't be anywhere around that funeral. Like, you know, you'd have to let the family grieve. And she says, verbatim. Why? I didn't do anything wrong. Even holding aside the murder, assuming that let's go with the wild assumption that her story about finding his body dead is true. She still then obstructed justice, abused his corpse, drowned it, then pulled it back up and stabbed it 41 more times and then weighed him down with a bunch of weights, put him back in the drink and she's saying, I don't know, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, Andy is speechless right now. Andy- <laughs> I,
0: can't. I, can't. I can't. There's no words. There's zero words. You know how I feel about victims in general, but this is like next level. This is like another planet victim. And it's exactly what Diane Fanning wrote about, about even when she was
1: a teenager not getting along with other girls, was because she. Just has no understanding of how her actions affect other people. Or what she says or anything. Or what she says or what's appropriate. You killed him. You don't get to go to his funeral. She's literally on this tape recorder saying like, I have some airline miles saved up. So I think that I'm going to just, you know, fly over to Maine for the funeral. That you caused. Yes, the you caused. So Les was allowed visitation of baby Shane. And this poor guy, he flew all the way to Texas just to hang out with baby Shane for an hour in a McDonald's. It's a part of his son. The last remaining part of his son. And it just demonstrated all over. He had such incredible strength. And he was speaking to, I think it was the Bangor Daily News, when he said that he realized that they had an uphill battle for custody. But he wasn't going to stop fighting. And he wasn't going to stop doing what he believed was right. He said, I told people we come from a logging family. My grandfather was a woodsman. My father was a woodsman. It's like being in the cut. You're in the cut and there's no stopping. It's just a straight ahead battle. There's no time to grieve or sit back or feel sorry for yourself because you're still in the cut. You're still busy. You still have work to do. You just have to keep working. And that's how he felt about trying to get full custody of his grandson. And unfortunately, it was a very uphill battle because even though Lloyd and Judy are the family members of the murderer, she has not yet been convicted. And this was Shane's home. It was the only place he knew. He knew these grandparents very well because they cared for him. And that he would be separated from Tristan, whom he was very bonded to. So I hate it. I don't like it. It was just, this was a difficult situation all around. And I have so much respect for less severance. The good news was over the summer of 2006, Shane was allowed to come to Maine for 60 days. It was ordered that they had to allow him to come for the summer. And that was a tremendously bittersweet time for the family because the visit coincided with what would have been Mike's 25th birthday. It's like they have Shane there, but they also don't know if they're going to get to keep Shane. They're also grieving. And the event was further marred by Wendy, of course. Now, she's out on bail at this point. Ugh. Yep. And she ends up sending flowers and a card to Les Severance, as well as presents for baby Shane. And she writes... Mike, happy birthday, love Wendy on the card with the flowers. What the fuck is wrong with her? Uh huh. And then listen to this this is the note that she sent Les and Brenda. Please know how much I'm thinking of y'all during these times of trite, which is wrong. I know how much Mike loved y'all, and that is how much I love y'all as well. I believe family is so very important. And after all of this turmoil is over, we will still be family, and I will be happy to say so. Here are some new toys and clothes for baby Shane. Tell him how much I love him. Tristan says he misses him very much. Maybe next time, Tristan can come too. Love always, Wendy. She also did not stop writing to last. There's like some more letters included in the book. She says something to him along the lines like two weeks later, like, Les, once this mess is all cleaned up, I wanna have a good relationship with you and the rest of the family. I know that Mike would want this. He would not want the boys split apart like they are. It's so important that we keep them together. They're just so close to each other. So, you know, I just want you to know that everyone's lying about me. And, and if you hadn't read the media, then you would have really liked me. And I think we'll get along after all this is over. As a parent, Whose child has been taken away by this vile woman. I cannot even tell you the violence that would live in my heart receiving these notes. Oh, no. She's like trying to gaslight him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you're not going to get away with this.
0: I'm not going to forget what you did. I hope they use these letters as evidence that they're all not fit to raise those kids.
1: There were more things too. There were, it didn't come out until after the custody case was basically over. But at one point, when she was out on bail over the summer, she was afraid that her parents were also going to take custody of Tristan. So even when she was out on bail, she did not get Shane back. So at this point, Judy and Lloyd had full custody of baby Shane, and she was allowed supervised visits. But Tristan was still, he's now four years old. He was completely in her care. Whose care? Wendy's care. Why? Because she was out on bail and they couldn't, there was no reason she hadn't proven herself to be a terrible
0: mother yet. We're going to talk about an incident. And they didn't have anyone. He didn't have a dad or a grandfather fighting in his corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. He doesn't have a
1: biological father. Yeah. So he has nobody who's trying to win custody of him. And the whole thing with the custody battle for Shane was that her parents had to step up because Les was fighting for him and she was at the time in jail. So somebody had to from her family, but there was never a fight about Tristan's custody because her parents weren't trying to like take her kids away. They were just trying to protect her kids. And she was now worried. It's kind of like when we talked about it in that previous episode in Manhattan, where the parents get custody of the kids, but then the dad moves back in and they all start fighting. And now they're fighting each other. So it sounds like something like that happened where Wendy tried to secretly record her father Lloyd being cruel because she was worried that they were going to also try to take Tristan away from her. And she wanted to have evidence that they were bad parents and they should not have her children. It was sick. And it's, it's uh, Diane Fanning writes about it in her book. She has a transcription of this, recording that Wendy made, and it's really weird. It's, like, Lloyd, like, singing and, like, sing-song voicing, and he's doing it in front of Tristan, and he's talking to Tristan, who's a three- or four-year-old kid, and he's saying, like, oh, your mommy hates everybody. She's going to kill us all. She's going to kill your nana. She's going to kill your mommy. She's going to kill your daddy. She's going to kill your both. And he's, like, saying all this weird stuff and, like, singing and saying that, like, basically... Wendy's in cahoots with the severance's custody lawyer, like that she's like making out with him and she's kissing him and stuff like that. It's like really weird, bizarre. But Dan Fanning points out that it just sounds like emotional abuse, that this is very practiced. It was definitely part of their household. And it does point to the fact that this man should not be raising small children. Yep. But that did not come out until after the judge had made a ruling on the custody, unfortunately. And they ruled that Judy and Lloyd would receive full permanent custody with Les getting visitation. But the visitation schedule was that he could come three Saturdays or Sundays a month and see the child from 9 to 6 p.m., which how is he going to do that when he lives in Maine and he has limited resources? Yeah, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And this is also, despite the fact that Les and Brenda had hundreds of recommendation letters glowing and talking about what great parents they were, how they were had the support of the community, that the community was going to help and give any resources that little Shane needed, I mean, people in the community were fundraising. They were like spray painting signs, like keep Shane in Maine. There was so much support from their community and there was like zero, zero support for Judy and Lloyd. Like, cause they don't have a community and cause they always ostracize themselves from the community. But despite that, despite all of this support and then the other side's lack of support, they still won custody And later on, I guess that Les was at a, I think he was like at a diner or something after the terrible decision and a retired border patrol agent came over to him, had recognized him and said, I'm very sorry about what happened with your grandson's custody. He said, I've spent most of my career in San Angelo. You're not from around here. You never had a chance. It was that community that they were going to keep the kid in their community. They were going to keep the kid in Texas, even if potentially the guardians were not the most fit to raise that child. It's fucked up. Yeah. Speaking of bad guardians and negligent parents. So, of course, Wendy's out on bail. She has full custody of her kid, Tristan, who's now four. And she once again proved how terrible she was when the four-year-old was discovered riding a four-wheeler and crying for his mommy at midnight in the parking lot of the Buffalo Wild Wings. Some people leaving called the restaurant manager outside and was like, you got to come back out here. There's a little child zipping around the parking lot about to get hit by a car. Oh my God. The restaurant manager managed to bring him inside. He was hysterical. He said he woke up and he didn't know where his mommy was. He was trying to find her. So that's why he came across the street looking for her. Turns out that Wendy had put her son down and decided to just leave him completely home alone and go
0: out drinking at a bar. So he crossed a freeway.
1: Yep. Well, it was like, it's like a major road. I would say it's like a two lane, but like kind of highway-ish. It's busy. And he had crossed that and he was, on a four wheeler going around the parking lot, where he could have been very easily hit, or kidnapped, or God knows what. And it's past midnight, so Wendy came rushing in to the Buffalo Wild Wings. I don't know if she was alerted or she got home and she found out he wasn't there. So she gets the Buffalo Wild Wings. She said to the police who are now there, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I ran out. I needed some supplies. I just he, he was in bed, and I ran out to the Walmart for 15 minutes." And the police, a different set of police, had seen her leaving the bar that very night. She was caught totally red-handed. They were like, yeah, we know you were at the bar. We know that. And she later admitted it. She was like, started crying. And then she's like, okay, you got me. Like, I just needed to blow off some steam. I'm really stressed and stuff. So her mom talks to her and her mom's pissed, of course. And she's like, why didn't you call me if you want to go out? Just call me and Tristan can spend the night at our house. And she's like, yeah, but I just thought you're going to take him. Like you took Shane. And her mom's like, we didn't take Shane. We had to like assume custody of him. So he didn't get taken away because of what you did.
0: Oh my God. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But she was like even blaming her mom for her bad decision, saying like, well, if maybe I wasn't worried that you were going to steal him, I would have let you babysit. But I'm worried about that. So, of course, the only right thing to do was leave a four-year-old child home alone so I could go out drinking. So it's your fault, mom. Yeah, just when you think she can't get any worse, she goes ahead and does something like that. Well, leading up to Wendy's trial, her defense filed a motion on September 25th, 2006, that claimed that Wendy's constitutional rights against unreasonable search and seizure had been violated when law enforcement illegally installed mobile tracking devices on private property and then tracked her movement to private land where they said she had a reasonable expectation of privacy. So this is basically their one and only hope, because if they can prove that this was unconstitutional and get all of that thrown out. It's obviously like fruit of the poison tree or whatnot. So all of the evidence following that is also thrown out. So this is basically they got to win this motion or they're screwed. Yeah. So the judge ordered a hearing simply to determine if Wendy's rights had been violated about this one issue. And unfortunately for Wendy, the judge determined that they had not, and that the U.S. Air Force had every right to track her car in an effort to aid the desertion investigation. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the Air Force knew that they were looking for a murder victim, but they were good on the stand, and they just said over and over again, look, like, if he deserted, the person who'd probably know where he was would be his wife. It just stands to reason. You got to track his wife, and then they'll lead you right to the deserter." And they couldn't argue with that. And it was in within their rights and purview to do that as the military. So that went through. The evidence was going to get in. And and when that was ruled, Wendy just collapsed. She knew her goose was cooked at that point. And so did the defense. So at that point, they said, we need a recess. And they went over to... The prosecutor and said, Let's let's talk deals. What you got for us? Because there's just a pile of evidence against this idiot murderer. Time
0: out. Time Time out. out. Can we get a redo?
1: Yeah. (laughs) We need a redo. They worked out a good deal for her though. Wendy eventually pleaded no contest and was given a prison sentence of twenty-five years. However, she will be eligible for parole after only 13 years. So this clearly was not the result that Les was looking for. And even on the 2020, he says that he would have been happier with the death penalty. Because there's a chance that she will be walking around having the pleasure of watching her children grow up in 13 years Well, Mike will never get any opportunity to see his kids, to touch their face, to see what they become. Uh, So he said to the Bangor Daily News, we all kind of realized that this isn't going to bring Mike back. We're kind of glad it's over, this part of it. Surprisingly, it doesn't do anything for the pain. I think we got robbed again. She is in jail right now because she is guilty of murder, but she has never admitted to anything. I guess we didn't get a whole lot of answers we were hoping we would get. Yeah, which Diane Fanning brings that up, too. By not having a trial, even a writer like Diane Fanning loses a lot of the opportunity to learn more about the case because there's no testimony. There's no evidence being brought into the you know public forum. So there are a lot of unanswered questions about how and why this terrible crime had occurred. Well, Wendy continued her lifelong tradition of lying, when she wrote a letter to the judge after three months. And she was basically begging not to be transferred to a larger federal prison, which she was supposed to be transferred shortly. And in order to get out of this, she claimed all sorts of
0: hardships, including that she was... What do you think she said? Oh, God, I don't know. Give me a clue. (laughs) It's her favorite go-to. Pregnant. Yep, she said she was pregnant. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I met a man. I got pregnant while I was out on mail. I'm pregnant now. Please do not transfer me. I need this medical care. She was not pregnant, which is also the dumbest lie, because guess what? There's a pretty fast and easy way to test whether somebody's pregnant or not. There is. It's called
0: a pregnancy test. Have you ever heard of it?
1: <laughs> yeah, later she's like, I guess I just thought I was. So, yeah, she was not pregnant and the judge said, yeah, I don't care. And even if you were pregnant, I probably wouldn't care. And you go into the federal facility. Goodbye. So that happened and her license to practice veterinary medicine was revoked, but they did say that she can earn it back. She can be licensed. Yep. If she gets out and I don't know if she goes through retraining or something, she can practice as a veterinarian again. Unbelievably, speaking of not cool, the Davidsons get to draw on Michael's Air Force pension and Social Security to the tune of over two grand a month. And they were also awarded Mike's half a million dollar insurance policy, which I understand because they have custody of his child. And obviously the benefits are supposed to go to Shane. But in practicality, They got rid of the son-in-law that they hated. They got to raise his son completely as their own. And they also got all of his money and benefits.
0: How did none of that go to Les? It's sick. There's something wrong with that.
1: Yeah. And Les thinks that maybe, because it's so hard to tell what Wendy's motivations were. Was it because Mike was maybe going to leave her? Was it because her mother had scared her into thinking that he was going to leave her and steal the baby? Was it because of his life insurance money? Because he had always had that half million dollar policy and he called his father when he was planning on getting married to Wendy and told his father that he was switching the beneficiary to the mother of his child. And Les was like, yeah, of course, you got to protect your family because what you do is dangerous. Yeah. But. Now that he was thinking about it, they were only married for five months. He was like, maybe she just wanted to get her hands on the money. We do not know what her motivation was. And there can really only be speculation about how it could happen that somebody who was well educated and seemingly smart enough to become a veterinarian would just turn around and do something so callously and cold like this. The woman that could not bear to euthanize animals just cold-heartedly euthanized her husband. So Diane Fanning speculated a little bit about how maybe this environment came to be and why Wendy was, and I thought it was important to note. She says it in her Afterword, and I'll just read a couple paragraphs from it because I thought it was an interesting point. The question was, how did she get here? What influences molded her into a woman with sociopathic intent? Wendy was raised in a place that was isolated from the rest of the world in a household where no one had ever traveled outside of the state of Texas. There seemed to be an underlying hostility towards outsiders in that home as evidenced by the lack of social interaction in their community and their refusal to extend hospitality to Les Severance on his first visit. But surely that was not sufficient to shape a criminal mind other contributing factors were at play. When Wendy got pregnant, her parents stepped up to take charge of the problem, disparaging the other half of the relationship as they did. When she lost two jobs in a row, they set her up with her very own clinic. Her parents rode to her rescue at every sign of trouble, teaching her to not accept responsibility for her own actions and to blame others for the problems in her life. Yep. And that's, what she did. We're surprised that somebody who was never forced to take responsibility for their actions did not take responsibility for their actions. We cannot be surprised by that.
0: No, not at all.
1: There was also, of course, you know, that secret tape recording of her father emotionally abusing her and berating her and doing it in a very weird and cruel fashion in front of her son. And there was some rumor and innuendo in San Angelo, Diane Fanning reported, uh, that potentially. Wendy had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse, and it could have been at the hands of her father. But that is, at this point, pure speculation, so we do not know it. We also still do not know the biological father of Tristan. She said something very strange about that, too. When she was in an interview or an interrogation, she countered what she had said earlier and said, oh, yeah, I know who the father of Tristan is, and he's right in front of your face which is a very weird thing to say. So there's a lot of like innuendo involved there, but we also can't really believe anything Wendy says. So it's just a hot mess. Wendy has not seen her family or her children since 2009. Tristan and Shane are now in their late teens and have been raised by the Davidsons, though Shane visits Maine every summer and has visitation on school breaks as well. And he has a good relationship with his paternal grandfather, but for Les, for Frank, for their family, and for the small town of Lee who lost a brave and selfless son, it is not enough. It could never be enough to make up for the loss of Michael Severance. So sad. So sad. In conclusion, I will finish where I started. I urge all of you single people of reproductive
0: age to use a condom. Yeah, Yes, also something that I like haven't really thought about before, but everyone should probably vet their vet. Yes. Yeah, I know that you have not seen season two of Love is Blind,
1: but the big villain on that season was a veterinarian. So between him Very. and Wendy over here, I'm feeling like some of you veterinarians might be a little bit more sus than I realized. Not all like benevolent Dr. Doolittles like I had pictured. Sorry to our veterinarians. We love you all. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you guys so much for listening.
0: Bye. Bye.